KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. This is KYW News Radio in depth. I'm Matt Leon. We saw firsthand recently how severe weather can overwhelm infrastructure as the remnants of Hurricane Ida left a ton of damage in our area. And we are seeing more and more storms like this, and they are presenting more and more challenges. So what do we need to do to match our infrastructure and our communities to the climate moment? What are some changes going to look like? For this conversation, we caught up with Dr. Franco Montalto. He is a professor of environmental engineering in the Department of Civil Architecture Architectural and Environmental Engineering at Drexel University. Really interesting stuff. Give a listen. When it comes to infrastructure and climate change, I think seeing the Vine Street Expressway turned into a canal is quite the eye-opener. Are we just starting to scratch the surface of what we will see as far as uh, the challenges and the struggles are outdated infrastructures going to face uh, as the weather and the climate changes? Well, unfortunately, uh, I'd say the the answer is probably yes, unless we start doing things differently, right? I mean, the climate scientists have been telling us for a long time that we were going to start having an increased frequency of extreme events. I mean, we've had extreme events in the past, but the climate scientists have been telling us for a long time that they'd become more frequent, more extreme. And the infrastructure that we have, especially in older cities like Philadelphia, in many cases was designed decades ago, if not centuries ago, or a century ago. And, um, and it's really challenging uh, to, to sort of uh, apply these new climate realities to this historic legacy infrastructure. And so the question about impacts really depends on what we do now and the extent to which we, we make the right choices and we retrofit our our city to be more adaptable to the to the future that looks like we're facing it's funny you say retrofit because that was one of the questions i had is it more a question of retrofitting or are there certain situations where we almost have to break down and build up again it's interesting i mean if you think about what 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 do we mean by retrofitting i mean to a great extent i mean philadelphia is already a built-out space and place and region and when i say retrofit i mean what are we doing? How are we reconfiguring that built-out area to make it more adapted to, to climate risks, as opposed to sort of abandoning ship and moving uh, outward into greenfields, into you know, further sprawl, further uh, impacts at, at larger uh, sort of distances from where we are right now? You know, so yes, so to answer your question, I guess some of that is redeveloping spaces and infrastructure systems within the, the existing built out area. You know, will there be some, uh, some new development in spaces that are not built out? Yeah, of course, especially, you know, globally. I mean, you know, if we're talking about Philadelphia, we have a lot of, we have a post-industrial landscape that we can redevelop. Globally, a lot of the urbanization that's happening is, uh, you know, in areas, uh, small cities that are uh, that will become big cities. So that's a different story sort of in the global context. But locally, when I say retrofit, I mean sort of thinking about ways of working with, starting with what we have and where we are and, and figuring out how this landscape and this infrastructure can be tweaked or in some cases fully reconstructed to reduce the impacts of, of climate on, on our everyday life and property. So let's talk about the Philadelphia area and let's say you get the keys to the castle. You get to make decisions on what 
should be done, how it's done, and where it's done. Are there a couple of things that would be right at the top of the list that need to be dealt with in Philadelphia to adjust infrastructure, improve the infrastructure uh, for more intense climate? Well, let me just preface this to say, you know, what I work on mostly is water systems. Um, obviously, you know, if you ask an energy expert and they, they'd be talking about grids and, uh, you know, if you ask uh, different you know, folks from different disciplines, they might have different answers. But from my perspective, from a water perspective, our discipline has really moved forward in our ability to evaluate risks and to plan for risks. And so, you know, the challenges that we face with climate change are sort of multifaceted, multi-pronged. You know, on the one hand, we've got sea level rise that's pushing water backwards into the Delaware River and raising, raising the mean sea level, probably something by up to three feet by the 2080s. On top of that, you've got increased extreme coastal events, these sort of cyclone events that push storm surges on top of those rising sea levels. Then you've got the fact that warmer air holds more moisture. And so we've got an increase in extreme precipitation. So that's sort of a, a stressor that's pushing the other way. It's pushing, you know, from the land out towards the sea. And so, you know, step one, in, in my opinion, is to look at the various combinations that are possible. You know, what happens if you get extreme rainfall uh, by itself? What happens if you get extreme rainfall on top of a surge. What happens if you get extreme rainfall on top of a surge in 2050, since the infrastructure that we're building today, we're gonna to expect to still be around and still be providing a level of service in 2050. And then what happens spatially? You know, what you have to think about different spatial patterns. I mean, in this case, I, I've done a lot of work in Eastwick and Eastwick got hit really hard with Isaias, but didn't get hit hardly at all with, uh, with Ida. So, you know, the, there are sort of different spatial dynamics and then there's temporal dynamics. You know, do we are we going to have a lot of rain over multiple days or back-to-back -back storms where you've got saturated landscape and you've got another storm on top of another storm on top of another storm? You know, or is it is it going to be a, a massive deluge uh, where you got like a whole lot of rain in a short amount of time on top of dry soils that are sort of desiccated and and not prepared to absorb that water? So, you know, step one in my opinion, is to look at all of these different compound risks and how they superimpose in space and time. And we've got new tools to do that, especially, you know, again, I'm talking from the water resources field. We've got, we've got modeling software and we've got increased computational capacity now. We've got digital maps and digital elevation. Um, we've got a lot of our infrastructure and more and more of it is getting sort of put into into electronic uh, geographic information system networks so that we can put it all together. Um, so the first question is, is, really, is really to assess the, the risks that we're facing in the future, given all the different sort of scenarios that could play out. And then we got to move into sort of a planning phase and look at different strategies for how to deal with those risks. And, and there's not one answer. You know, if you're looking at one set of risks you know, like a coastal risk, you might want to protect yourself against the coast. But then, you know, if you if you build something to protect yourself against high water at the coast, and what you actually get is extreme precipitation, well, now you've got another situation. You've got water behind your protective measure that's built up. And what if you get both of them? Uh, and what if you get both of them with a power outage so that pumps can't pump the water out? So, 
So there's this there's this sort of creative process of looking at different uh, different planning strategies, different infrastructure scenarios, and and just sort of thinking about how those work in different communities, and specifically the communities that are at greatest greatest risk, greatest physical risk, but then the communities that are also of greatest are the most vulnerable because of other problems that we have, you know, in this city and elsewhere. And and to look at how, you know, how those different strategies, those sort of prototypical strategies might work in different communities. And then what you want to do is go back to those simulations that you did of baseline risks and see which of these sort of planning scenarios or infrastructure scenarios protect you against the greatest number of, of potential risks. And that's what we call sort of uh, robust or resilient design. Resilient meaning, you know, life can go on despite these uh, these these risks, and and robust meaning that the same design can sort of protect you against multiple sets of risks. And then you know, then you got to look at the costs, and you got to go back, and you got to make revisions, and you got to look at the human costs, the economic costs, the environmental costs, uh, and you got to make revisions. So to me, you know, the future of all of this is is sort of uh, planners and modelers working harmoniously with policymakers and communities to kind of identify where the risks are, what are the different strategies that we can use to, to reduce those risks, which of those strategies make the most sense from all these different perspectives, and then what is the build-out? Like, what, what is the retrofit, as we were talking about earlier, you know, what is the sort of retrofit strategy that, you, that protects you against the most number of risks? Um, and, and that's so so that's not, you know, it's not a prescription. It's like no one has the magic bullet. It's it's an iterative and uh, sort of deliberative process where infrastructure decision makers are working with communities, are working with scientists, are working with engineers, are working with folks who do who manage data sets, you know, really complex data sets. And they're all working together to kind of think through what we can do to, to minimize risks. Are there any examples of where we're starting to see changes or starting to see things put in place in the Philadelphia area? Or if you have from other cities that you, you've worked with or, or looked at or been consulted with some plans and give us an idea of what this might look like to the average person? You know, again, you know, I might I come at this from the water perspective, so I'll, I'll sort of start there. Um one of the challenges we have, especially with extreme precipitation, is that when it rains, especially on an urbanized landscape where you've got a lot of roofs and, and roads and driveways and sidewalks and spaces that can't that don't allow water to get into the ground, is that that rain turns into runoff. That runoff goes towards our drains, and some percentage of it is conveyed through the drains, either to a receiving water body like the river or to a treatment plant. But it was never cost effective to design those pipes and those drains for the most extreme precipitation events. You know, they were designed to, for some reasonable events, some, you know, the types of rainfall events that we get more routinely. But even yesterday's extreme precipitation would have caused a little bit of flooding. And now today's extreme precipitation is, is creating a whole lot of flooding, as, as we just saw. So the question becomes, what do you do? Um, it's not realistic to, to, to imagine digging up the whole city and making all the pipes 10 times bigger so that we're ready for a 500-year flood or a 500-year uh, precipitation or hurricane. That, that might not be cost-effective, probably is not cost-effective 
when you think of all the other things that you could do with all that money. So then the question becomes, well, what do you, what do you do if our if our if our stormwater system can't convey that water out? We're going to have some flooding, and how how are we going to minimize the impacts of that flooding? And here's where I'm really interested in some of the work that's happening in Copenhagen. I have not been uh, consulted on any of that work, although I have gone to visit and talk to some of the folks who are involved in that in that work. But they're actually reconfiguring their streets and some of the green spaces um, in between buildings, some parks. Uh, so that they're safe to flood. So imagine if when you have this runoff that's generated from an extreme precipitation, some of it goes into the catch basin at the end of the block and enters the sewer system. Some of it backs up. And right now it backs up and it could back up into people's basements. And, and you know, like we saw in New York City, when that happens, people can actually die. But what they're doing in Copenhagen is they've reconfigured their streets so that that water just travels down the street. So the street is not just conveying vehicles, the street is now conveying water. And so imagine the water following sort of the contours of the urban street network uh, and flowing down, you know, downslope through the streets until it gets to a place where it can be safely allowed to pond. And that could be a park, that could be like in the context of an individual development. I mean, imagine you had two row houses uh, like you have in Philadelphia and you know, you had a depression, you know, the, the alley space, so to speak, was was dug down deeper uh, so that water, you know, it's usually an alley, but in these extreme conditions, it can pond up to a foot of water in there, for example, temporarily, right? So there's still a drain and it. When the rain subsides, the water can still drain. So Copenhagen is doing that sort of on a, on a citywide scale. And they got these things they call retention streets. And they've even done some really interesting calculations that look at sort of like what is a tolerable depth of flooding in the street that still allows emergency vehicles and cars to travel, still allows bikers, still allows, uh, allows uh, pedestrians. And it's something like 10 centimeters, I think, is what they came up with. So they, they design their curbs, they design their sidewalks, they design their streets so that they can pond uh, during extreme precipitation at, uh, at 10 centimeter depths. And then you're now using that entire roadway to move water away from people's buildings and uh, you know where it can cause property damage and loss of life. So that's a really interesting sort of set of ideas coming out of Copenhagen. They call it cloudburst planning. Uh, New York City actually has a pilot project to implement some of these ideas in a, in a portion of Southeast Queens. And you know I think you're beginning to see uh, on a project by project basis, uh, urban designers and architects and engineers beginning to sort of think about this at, at you know individual projects um, here and there that you're beginning to see more frequently. How long are we talking it would take to do some of these things? Like you mentioned that fascinating Copenhagen project. Is this something that's measured in years? The implementation of the project, I mean, you know, when you recontour, I mean, Philadelphia, like, like most cities has a, um, you know, sort of a regular plan for recontouring streets. And, you know, something like this could be integrated into, you know, into the regular sort of reconstructing of streets. Now, Philadelphia is not Copenhagen, right? We've got lots of narrow streets. We've got uh, buildings right up against the, the sidewalk and five feet away from the street. So I'm not saying that you can, you know, as I was saying earlier, this sort of resilience planning has to be conducted in an appropriate way, given the local opportunities and challenges that you have. So you would look at you know, something like Columbus Boulevard in a different way than you would look at, you know, some of those little alleys um, in Center City. The concepts are not foreign to urban designers and to engineers. You know, designing 
recontouring pavement this way versus that way, uh, depressing green spaces uh, so that they can, you know, so that they're lower than the, the tributary catchment area, lower than the impervious areas that are generating the runoff, putting in pipes with small holes in them that allow the water after the rain to kind of drain out slowly so that it doesn't cause a flood downstream. So none of these things are, um, are particularly revolutionary from an urban design perspective. What is revolutionary is thinking about the need to do this in distributed locations. You know, I think for a long time, we kind of, you know, we, we have these extreme events and then we kind of forget about them. And then we go ahead with the typical design process and we kind of assume sort of historical conditions that are not so extreme. So what's happening now is, you know, the, the frequency with which we're seeing these types of events are, you know, sort of causing us to, to think twice about the way we design things and to, uh, and to think about this in a more regular way. I also think that, you know, what, what comes up is, you know, we, we can't do this in a sort of draconian way. You know, we can't just in a top-down sort of high-level uh, way come into communities as, as uh, sort of planners or engineers um, and say, hey, you all have to reconfigure your property in this way. You know, what's really challenging about this type of work you know, again, back to this concept of retrofitting, we're doing it in a place where people already live, right? Their lives are there. These are vibrant places. These are people, these are places where people have raised families and they don't necessarily want to leave. And, and they may not necessarily want to change, you know, the way they inhabit those places and stuff. So it's, it's it, to do this, and, and those are all valid and extremely important considerations. And so, you know, from the design community's perspective, we need we now need to be much more participatory, much more engaged than we have been. I mean, I'll speak as an engineer. My discipline in the past is certainly guilty of uh, saying, you know, trust me, I know best. This is the way it has to be. I did the calculations. You just have to deal with it. And that's not the way that you're going to get resilience. You're going to get resilience through looking at each space from multiple perspectives, from an ecological perspective, from a social perspective, from an economic perspective, and from a climate perspective, and, and, and then trying to figure out that sweet spot. You know, how can we enable these places to continue to be valuable to communities and yet to not be wiped out when you have an extreme event? How do we make them robust and resilient? And so that's, you know, that's a, what I consider, I, and I'm doing a lot of work like that right now, trying to work with communities in participatory design processes. To, to sort of, and then using some of these new simulation tools that I'm talking about to actually simulate the impacts of, of these ideas that, that come from the community, that come from the places. And, and it's, you know, that's where you get a win-win when you've got a, a homegrown set of concepts for how to reduce risks that actually will perform well and protect that community uh, given future risk. And, you know, it's, it's interesting. I've done work in developing countries and other places, and there's a local knowledge of a place that is extremely valuable for a designer and for a planner. And so just taking the time to, to sort of engage with people and find out what happens when these extreme events occur, how do you cope, where, where are your biggest problems, uh, what's acceptable, tolerable in terms of uh, changes, and then, and then thinking about how the infrastructure can serve uh, those communities in, in those ways. That, that to me is a really interesting sort of direction that, that all of this is going. 
with your focus on, as you mentioned, water and the Philadelphia area, and you've mentioned a couple areas, Eastwick, you know, Columbus Boulevard, are there areas that if you were kind of putting a depth chart of where the most focus is going to have to be, what would be some areas that you would have real concerns that if we don't get imaginative, these areas are really going to be under duress over the next 10, 20 years? Well, you know, it's interesting because flooding can happen from a variety of causes, as I mentioned earlier, right? You can have coastal flooding, you can have what's called pluvial flooding, which is when it rains a lot and the water can't get out. You can have fluvial flooding, which is when water comes down a river and overflows the banks, right? So, you know, each of those types of risks would potentially create flooding risks in different parts of the city. So, you know, coastal flooding would be, you know, for example, a place like Eastwick, as we've seen in the past, but but Eastwick is also a place where you know, a lot of water comes down the Darby and Cobbs Creek. And when that happens, it backs up and, and it can cause flooding there. You know, so that's that fluvial flooding. But we also saw that in Maniunk. This rain-induced flooding doesn't necessarily have to be along a stream bank or the coast. You know, it could be somewhere in the middle of the city where because of the topography of the city um, and the, the condition of the infrastructure, when it rains, the water simply has nowhere to go can't get into the sewer system. It can't flow overland because the, you know, the slope is up in all directions. And so you get this, this localized flooding. And I've seen, you know, just from driving around the city during extreme events, which is something that I do uh, because this is what I'm interested in. You know, you see underpasses, places where roads dip underneath uh, train tracks or, you know, underneath elevated expressways and stuff where you see ponding occur temporarily, uh, you know, in those, in those conditions. So, so different types of flooding can produce risks in different places. And, you know, I know there's some work going on there, you know, that the city has actually developed um, some initial maps that show some of the places where flooding has occurred historically. But I think, you know, a big part of what we need to do in climate planning is to not always assume that what's happened in the past is what's going to happen in the future. Because, you know, the the sort of range of extremes that we saw in the past is is going to be different than the range of extremes that we're going to see in the future. And so that's, you know, where what I was talking about earlier, that that sort of scenario modeling becomes really, really important because, you know, the, the future is going to be very different than the past. You know, I'll, I'll say one other thing that's that's really interesting that's happening in my field right now, and it's sort of a translation. And what I mean by that is that the climate scientists have been telling us certain things for a long time. But one of the problems on the ground in the sort of infrastructure and design community is that the climate scientists are speaking a different language. You know, they'll tell us in the 2080s, you know, there's this percent chance that we'll have this much change in annual precipitation. You know, but a designer uh, is saying, well, I need to tell you how big that inlet to the sewer system or to this green infrastructure facility has to be. And if you tell me that there's, you know, a 17% increase in annual precipitation by 2080s, I can't use that information to design this green infrastructure practice bigger or better. Um, but what's happening now is that the climate scientists and the climate projections are getting both um, more localized. Uh, and so some of the new IP, the new IPCC report that came out is now beginning to tailor um, the, the, the information that they deliver to specific regions. But then there are a lot of conversations that I've been fortunate enough to be privy to 
completely between climate scientists and engineers who are now developing new techniques to take the outputs from the climate models, which you know are not directly applicable to design purposes, and, and to tr- sort of translate them into engineering uh, sort of design standards. And so like actually last summer, I taught a class to some continuing education students. These were practitioners as well as Drexel engineering students. And we, we did just that. We, we worked with seven municipalities in the mid-Atlantic. And those municipalities wanted to update their design standards for stormwater, considering precipitation, uh, projections of, of increased precipitation. And so we had to, the reason this was an engineering sort of graduate level course was we had to, we had to talk to the climate scientists. We had to look at the outputs from multiple climate models because you know, that's one of the one of the things that introduces uncertainty into climate change planning is that there are lots of climate scientists out there using lots of different models to predict things in lots of places. And so, you know, you have to, you know, do you trust this model or that model, or do you pick these five models or those 10 models? How do you do that? So we spent an entire 10 weeks last summer doing that uh, for seven different municipalities and and then came up with what we thought was, you know, the likelihood of a you know the percent change. In, in rain that we expect, you know, a few decades into the future. And, and then we delivered that information uh, back to the, the sort of stormwater engineers at these, in these municipalities and utilities. And they were able to, you know, then consider that in their decision-making. So, so to me, that's really exciting. This, and that's what I meant by translation. It's sort of transfer of information back and forth between the, the climate science community and the urban design community. I'm curious we've heard so much about this huge infrastructure package that's been the white house has proposed that's been working its way through congress i don't know how much of it you're familiar with but i'm curious if you have had a chance to talk to people or look at it or read about it is what could be in there does it meet our moment does it have the the flexibility does it have the look ahead to the future as you talked about and not just rebuilding things from the past does it meet the moment well, I mean, of course, the devil's in the details in terms of what what finally gets passed, and uh, you know, I know that's all in process and being hashed out. But I don't know. I, to me, <laughs> I'm not a politician, but I, I think that the politicians who are debating this bill really need to look at the full picture of adaptation and mitigation needs. And, and there are certainly ways that we can design infrastructure that reduces um, the carbon footprint. You know, and 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 that goes back to you know even again back to this retrofitting question. I mean, are we are we promoting sort of patterns of development that require lots of private automobile use? And if we're doing that, are, are you know are we are we promoting electric automobiles? But isn't it better to not require automobiles? Isn't it better to think about ways that you've got mixed use developments and all of the things that now for decades we've talked about in terms of smart growth and sustainability, none of this, you know, all of this stuff has been talked about for a long time. Uh, but now's the time to sort of integrate all of this. We, we, you know, we know the problems that are built into the sort of historical way that we've developed cities, developed infrastructure systems, developed communities. I, I want to, you know, I, I'd like to see multifunctional infrastructure that really helps us to remedy, you know, not just the Hurricane Ida impact, but 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 all of the, the the sort of things that we strive for in our society. And my final question, are you optimistic that we're going to get on the right path and get close to where we need to be? 
Well, look, I mean, I'm an optimist in general. If I was not an optimist, I could not work in this field because it's certainly much easier to close your eyes and, and just hope that nothing bad happens. But I do think that events like Ida and uh, Isaias and Sandy, um, these, these types of events and, and, you know, some of the wildfires out West, um, these types of events do capture um, the public's uh, attention in, in ways that, you know, a scientist writing a paper does not, or the IPCC, you know, issuing warnings uh, and, 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 you know, 15,000 page <laughs> reports uh, does not. And, you know, unfortunately, um, this past summer in particular, we've seen sort of extreme event after extreme event after extreme event. And people are seeing that. And I think that, that it's going to become increasingly impossible to ignore the need for change. I don't think it will be possible to ignore um, to ignore what the climate is telling us and, and, and to address it appropriately. So the knowledge is there, the knowledge base is growing, and it's a matter of uh, sort of getting it included in policy. That's it for this episode of KYW News Radio in depth. You can listen to the podcast free anytime on the Odyssey app, and you can find it wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Matt Leon, and we'll have another episode out soon. <laughs>